so today we are going through uh, this, the, second, the second message in this sermon series called Jesus in, in Genesis. And, uh, you know, we, we're combing through the, the book of Genesis to find Jesus on display. Um, now, you probably know that um, in Genesis in the Old Testament, Jesus' name isn't specifically mentioned, but that doesn't mean that he isn't there. Um, in fact, last week, if you were with us, you saw that, that Jesus was present from the very first verse in the Bible. And I thought that was a really great message. And what made it better was uh, midweek joining in a, in a small group and, uh, and being able to, to sit with some of you and kind of chew through that, right? And, and, um, and discuss it and, and talk about it and really get more out of it than just simply listening to somebody, you know, talk about it from up here. Um, it, was, it, was, it was cool. And what's, what's cool about it is uh, that that first passage isn't the only place in Genesis that we see this clear picture of Jesus. And over the next couple of weeks, we'll see three or four more places where that happens. And, and what's still cooler than that is that it's not just in Genesis that we see this picture of Jesus, but actually um, all through the Old Testament and, and in fact, the entire Bible is centered around Jesus. So this message today we're gonna, that we're going to talk about is it's got a little bit of a, a mystery to it. And, you know, I like to, um, I like to watch like mystery movies or suspense movies or whatever. And, and I like to, uh, try to figure it out before the end. Right. And, and in order to figure out what the, what, you know, that, that sort of, uh, twist in the plot is there's, there's always something early on in the movie that you just dismiss as, as kind of a, a non-issue or whatever. But then later on in the movie, um, that, that thing happens to be the, the, the little bit of evidence that, that uh, you know, solves the case or whatever it is. And I like to, to be able to do that. And that's what we're going to kind of do here today. So let's jump into, into this mystery. So we're, we're going to be talking primarily about a passage in uh, Genesis 14. But let me, let me kind of lay out the, the, the context here. So the story starts with Abram, who would go on to be called Abraham, and his nephew Lot. And Abram and Lot are, are really successful and they, they become very wealthy. And at, at some point, the area that they're in becomes a little too crowded for them and there starts to be some conflict. And so Abram and Lot decide that they're gonna take their, their tribes or their parts of the family and, and separate them a little bit so that they're not having this conflict over things like grazing rights and water rights and that sort of thing. So Lot heads to the Jordan Valley, to the city of Sodom, which is a very sinful place. And Abram heads to Canaan, to the Hebron Valley. And, and God blesses Abram. He gives him land and, and he promises him uh, many, many descendants. You guys may be familiar with that story. But then a war breaks out and, and five kings decide to sort of uh, form up a, an, an army and they go to war against another king named King Keterlamir. And King Keterlamir defeats them in battle and he takes all of their stuff, right? All the spoils of war. He takes all their livestock and, the, and their, their wealth and their people. And amongst the ones that he takes, he captures Lot. Takes everything that Lot owns and all of Lot's people, all of his family. Well, word gets out to Abram 
And Abram decides he's not going to let this happen to his family. So he forms up a, his own army of only 318 men. And because Abram places significant trust in God, he takes these 318 men with the power of God and he defeats King Keterlamir and, and rescues Lot and takes back all of the spoils of war that these five kings had lost. And then afterwards, he's on his way home and the king of Sodom comes out to meet him and to thank him certainly for, for winning that stuff back. And, and the king of Sodom offers, offers Abram this, you know, whatever spoils he wants from what he has recovered. <clears throat> and then out of nowhere, yet another king comes along to meet with him. And he's a bit unknown. And this is kind of where this mystery comes from. So, so um, let's jump to Genesis 14. And it says, And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, and a priest of God Most High, brought Abram some bread and wine. Melchizedek blessed Abram with the blessing, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has defeated your enemies for you. Then Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of all the goods he had recovered. <clears throat> now you might be wondering, okay, what's the mystery here? Well, if you are familiar with this story or with, with the Old Testament... Then, uh, then, then you may know that this is, this is the, uh, the only place where we, where we actually physically see this king and priest Melchizedek. And he, in fact, he's one of the most mysterious people in the, in the Bible. He shows up for one day in, in Abram's life and then he's gone. But what happened that day was powerful and, it, and it's remembered through history. So when it comes to understanding Melchizedek, there are some varying thoughts. Some propose that Melchizedek was actually a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ or what they call a Christophany. And others say that Melchizedek is presented as a type of Christ, which is a, a person in the Old Testament that behaves in a way that corresponds to Jesus' character or actions later on in the New Testament. Now, regardless of which of these you buy into, which one that you prefer, um, as we dig into the mystery of who he is, we see his close connection to Jesus. And so let's, let's do that together today. So the first thing that we see is that in the Old Testament, Melchizedek was a mysterious priest of God. He's a foreshadow of a better priest that would come. And what's, what's cool about this mysterious Melchizedek is that this is one of the greatest proofs uh, that God wrote the Bible is found in this person, in Melchizedek. And here's what I mean. So in Genesis 14, he's only present for in, th in three verses. That's it. That's all we have. Um, and there, so it's a limited sample, but it's profound. See, Melchizedek is unique because he is both a priest and a king, and no one else held this title. He's not just any priest though, he's a priest of the most high God and he's called by God. And we also see that he's very powerful. Remember, he came and he blessed Abram. Abram was, as we know, he was gonna go on and become the, the father of Israel, right? So Abram's already a powerful man in his own right. And yet he's blessed by this Melchizedek. See, Abram was, was powerful also because God had, had made a covenant with him. And we see a clear level of superiority here. And, and we see that 
that Abram submits to him. It said that Abram gives him a tithe, a tenth of all that he had recovered from the war. So it's, it's clear that Melchizedek is something special, but he represents, he represents more than that. And here's what I mean. If we fast forward a thousand years, King David makes a reference to him again in Psalm 110, where it says, the Lord has taken an oath and will not break his vow. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord stands at your right hand to protect you. He will strike down many kings when his anger erupts. So remember what we talked about in Genesis 14. Abram, with the power of God and 318 men, defeats powerful kings and armies. And Melchizedek said, blessed be God most high who has defeated your enemies for you. And the thing is, God never changes. So, so he did this for, for Abram. He did this for David. He'll do this for Jesus. And more importantly, he's going to do this for us. See, this is God keeping his covenant and fulfilling prophecy. But this psalm is more than just that. So if you, if you read that, that passage, you'll see that this is a clear picture of a greater king to come. And, you know, this, this passage in Psalm, this Psalm 110, is one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament because it's known for its theme of laying out the credentials for the Messiah and, and pointing out that Jesus is, is king. But it's also a picture of a greater high priest to come. And yet there's still more to connect the dots. So if we fast forward another thousand years, let's look at what it says and what the writer of Hebrews says. This Melchizedek was king of the city of Salem and also a priest of God most high. When Abraham was returning home after winning a great battle against the kings, Melchizedek met him and blessed him. Then Abraham took a tenth of all he had captured in battle and gave it to Melchizedek. The name Melchizedek means king of justice, and king of Salem means king of peace. There is no record of his father or mother or any of his ancestors, no beginning or end to his life. He remains a priest forever, resembling the son of God. See, the writer of Hebrews is telling us that Melchizedek, mentioned in Genesis 14, who is also mentioned in Psalm 110, is pointing to the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. So from Genesis to Psalms to Hebrews over a span of 2,000 years, God is preserving the integrity and the unity of his word. So you see this mystery starting to be unveiled here. Melchizedek is a clear resemblance of Jesus Christ, the Messiah to come. And, and, a, and Jesus would become our high priest. So it was, it's woven together from the very beginning, all through the Bible, from the very beginning, over 2,000 years. So what we're seeing is that in Hebrews, the writer is using the story to show that, that Jesus is greater than all and that he has been there from the beginning, but that he is a better king and a better priest. So now that's a little bit of history that, that we can see um, God setting the stage for Jesus uh, using the words of, of King David and then seeing it explained further through the book of Hebrews. So what does this mean for us today? It means that Jesus alone is our high priest. 
He restores all that has been broken in our relationship with God. Now, if you've studied the Bible, you might be a little confused here because you might be asking, how is this possible? Weren't the high priest and the, and the priests, uh, weren't the, the, the high priest and the priests on, uh, coming through the, the tribe of Levi only? Well, yes, that's true. And wasn't Aaron the first official high priest? Well, yes, that's true too. And that's why this is so powerful. See, the Aaronic priesthood that came through the tribe of Levi was meant only for the people of Israel. Now remember, last week, we saw that sin entered the world and cursed everything. And there was this this chasm that was created between people and God. People were separated from God because of sin. And yet God made a way for his people to be in relationship with him again. And we learned about the process that was in place and a covenant that was made, that was made, that God gave this law to Moses. He gave the people priests from the tribe of Levi Levi, who would serve as mediators between the people and God. So let me kind of explain the, the Old Testament priest process. So there was one high priest who could enter into God's presence to seek forgiveness for sin. And that priest had certain duties and, and responsibilities and rituals that he would do, including sacrifices. And he would do these over and over and over again. And there was never any finality to sin. It was just momentary forgiveness. And there was this constant reminder and this constant process in place. Now, that was the, the priesthood through the tribe of Levi, the Aaronic priesthood. And yet Melchizedek was a priest some three generations before the tribe of Levi and six generations before Aaron, the first high priest. So Jesus comes from a priesthood that goes all the way back to Abraham before Israel was even a thing. Long before the nation of Israel, God had a plan to restore all people, not just Israel. See, God is doing something to restore everybody, including you and me. So you see that with Jesus coming from uh, a line, coming, not coming from Aaron, he ushers in a, a new covenant for all people that is better, that's greater than the old one that was only created for Israel. Now in Hebrews 7, it says, Jesus is the one who guarantees this better covenant with God. There were many priests under the old system for death prevented them from remaining in office. But because Jesus lives forever, his priesthood lasts forever. Therefore, he is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. He's the kind of high priest we need because he is holy and blameless unstained by sin. He has been set apart from sinners and has been given the highest place of honor in heaven. Unlike those other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices every day. They did this for their own sins first and then for the sins of the people. But Jesus did this once for all when he offered himself as the sacrifice for the people's sins. 
The law appointed high priests who were limited by human weakness. But after the law was given, God appointed his son with an oath and his son has been made the perfect high priest forever. So the priesthood of Melchizedek is more effective because it required a single sacrifice once and for all. And that was Jesus Christ. While the Levitical priesthood made endless sacrifices day after day, time after time. See, the Aaronic priests served in an earthly temple and Jesus' temple is a heavenly one. Melchizedek was greater than Abraham, greater than Aaron, greater than the the Jewish priesthood. And Jesus came from the line of Melchizedek. He was our, our great high priest. In fact, Jesus is more than a priest and more than a king. He's also the ultimate sacrifice. Now here's why this is so significant for us today. Because Jesus alone fixes our relationship with God. He restores our brokenness and he pays that penalty for our sin. The old way is gone and Jesus is the new way and Jesus is the only way. In fact, based off of verse 26, we see that only Jesus qualifies as a priest in the order of Melchizedek. He's unique. No one else can hold this position. Jesus lasts forever. He became our sacrifice forever. He fixes our sin forever and he's the perfect high priest. He's the perfect sacrifice once for all time. In Hebrews 10, 11 through 12, it says, under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. But our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. Then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. And he did this because Jesus is the righteous one. See, Jesus puts his righteousness on those who come to him believing that he is righteous. This is the, this is the great exchange. His righteousness for our sin. And it is a completely one-sided and unfair trade, but I'll take it. And listen, guys, I don't know, I don't know where you stand today but everyone is affected by sin. Sin separates us from God. Unfortunately, there is a payment for that sin and it is, God, it is death and it is permanent separation from God. But Jesus enters into God's presence on our behalf and he did that because he's free from sin. He gave his life as a sacrifice for that sin. And when we put our faith in Jesus, everything is made new forever. So please don't leave here today without experiencing a relationship with Jesus. See, God loves us so much that he had a plan in place from the very beginning to fulfill his covenants despite our sin. Since Christ sacrificed his life once for all, we can live boldly in our faith, encouraging others to do the same. See, this really ought to impact the way that we live. We should be, we do away with these rules and rituals, we should be living boldly in our faith. We have the ability to have a personal relationship now with the living God, and we can enter into his presence. In fact, his presence lives in us through the Holy Spirit. And continuing in Hebrews 10, 
19 through 21, it says, and so dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter into heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. Guys, the enemy wants you to feel guilty. Satan wants you to be ashamed of your sin. He wants you to think that you're not good enough. He wants you to, to uh, feel far from perfect. He wants you to feel far from God. But that's all a lie. When we put our faith in Jesus, we have been made perfect in God's eyes. That's the way he sees us. Because of Jesus' sacrifice, we can boldly enter into his presence and we have direct access to God. So we can boldly live out our faith. But you know what the overflow of, of making that decision is? Is that we are being made holy in his presence. Christ once for all made his believers perfect in God's sight. And at the same time, he's making us holy. See, he's not, he's not finished with us yet. This is a continual this is a continual process. When we engage in relationship with him, he makes us more like him. We shouldn't strive to sin and seek forgiveness. And honestly, a lot of, a lot of the world views Christians this way. They, they believe that, that we feel free to sin because we've got this get out of jail free card of, of grace. And, and honestly, maybe some of us feel that way too, but we shouldn't. We need to strive for holiness. And then when we sin, rest in his, in his grace. Continuing in Hebrews 10, <clears throat> it gives us some instruction. It says, let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm for God can be trusted to keep his promise. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. So the question that we really should be asking ourselves is what do we do with all this? Well, it starts off by telling us to remain hopeful, right? We know that life is gonna get hard. We know that there's gonna be troubled times and there's gonna be times that, that we want to give up. But Jesus demonstrated for us that he's consistent, right? He's demonstrated for us that he has uh, a plan to restore us, that he's gonna return for us one day. So live in hope. That's the first part of that. But we also don't wanna, we don't, we don't wanna miss, careful on that one. We don't wanna miss these very powerful words of encouragement and instruction. It says, let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. See, this should cause us to, to love others more, right? We have an opportunity to, to help each other in this pursuit through discipleship, through mentoring, through loving on each other and caring for each other. And then it goes on and says, and let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage each other, encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return 
is drawing near. See, guys, we have significant privilege in our new faith, right? We have, we have the privilege of this right here. We have the ability to meet together. We have the ability to, to pour into each other's life with one-on-one discipleship and with family discipleship. We have the ability to love on each other and care for each other and lift each other up the way that Jesus demonstrated for us. Now, it's, I think it's difficult to, to know both the story of Melchizedek and the story of Jesus and, and not associate the two. But at the very least, we can say that centuries before Jesus came, God gave us a clear picture of his purpose, and that was Jesus to restore all that had been lost. You guys pray with me. Lord God, I just thank you for, I thank you for the knowledge that you had a plan long before our biggest, worst problems uh, ever became known to us. You had a a way, a plan to restore us. And Lord, I just ask that Anybody that's, that's here listening to this message would, if, if they haven't uh, started this relationship with you, Lord, I ask that you would, that you would, you would pull at them, you'd tug at their hearts and help them to be open to it, Lord, and, and uh, draw them in so they, they seek that, that relationship with you. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the way that you bless us and that you love us and you call us to be yours. We say this in Jesus' name, amen.